Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, All right. Hello. Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles, California, and it is great to be with you. I appreciate you listening. Today on the program, my guest is Steve Almond, author of the new novel, All the Secrets of the World. Your job really is to become more interested and more curious about why your characters are behaving in the ways that they're behaving than the ego drama of, is this a good sentence? Did, it, did I make the reader happy? Oh, did, does the reader know how smart I am and how big my vocabulary is and how clever I am? And like, once you're more interested in the story you're telling, then whether it's interesting to the reader, whether your attention is really, fo- that's when you know that you, you've got something on your hands. All right, that is Steve Almond, author of the new novel, the debut novel, All the Secrets of the World, available from Zando. Zando is a new press founded by Molly Stern, formerly of Crown. She is a very successful editor who edited Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming, which you may have heard of. It sold about 14 million copies or something crazy like that. And All the Secrets of the World is, I believe, the lead title from Zando, or one of their earliest titles. It is a book that has been a long time in the making about 30 years or so. It is Steve Allman's first novel. He is a very prolific author. He's guested on this show many times before, but his previous efforts have been story collections, works of nonfiction, and he took a big swing with this one and has written an excellent and massively entertaining novel. All the Secrets of the World is a literary thriller you could fairly say. I think if you have to categorize it, you would categorize it as a literary thriller, or at least I would. And this may come as a bit of a surprise to fans of Steve Ullman's previous books. But what I found as a fan of his previous books is that it's all ultimately of a piece. 
and it's very thrilling for me to see him have this success after fighting the good fight for so long and to see him synthesize so many of his thematic and personal and historical and political and professional concerns into a work of fiction that is so genuinely gripping, so deeply felt, so deeply smart in all the ways that we have become accustomed to with Steve Almond and so entertaining. A great book to read by the pool or on the beach this summer. Uh, It just shows great range and I think it's going to be a big success and my conversation with Steve Almond will be coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is made possible by Ig, publisher of my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. How about that? The book is due out on May 10th in trade paperback and ebook editions. There is also an audiobook edition, read by yours truly, that will be available from Tantor Media and Highbridge Audio. Be Brief and Tell Them Everything is available for pre-order right now, and on May 10th it will be available widely. It is a work of autofiction that is about, among other things, creation, creative exasperation, grief, loss, fatherhood, marriage, fate, failure, psychedelic reckoning, (laughs) and more. It's all in there somewhere. It's a book that over time became about its own making. It's a very personal story for me. I hope it's uh, funny in places, darkly funny. And again, it is available from IG. I also want to say that I have some events coming up to celebrate the launch of my book. The full list is available over at bradlisty.com, but I'll go over just a few of them right now. On May 9th, I'm going to be doing an in-person book launch event at Chevalier's here in Los Angeles at 7 p.m. And then on Thursday, May 12th, I will be doing a virtual event for Powerhouse Arena in Brooklyn. I will be in conversation with author Chelsea Hodson at 7 p.m. Eastern. On Monday, May 16th, there's going to be a bit of a party here in Los Angeles at Stories Books in Echo Park. I will be reading with some of my friends in the Los Angeles literary community. I will be joined by, and forgive the pronunciation if I'm screwing it up, Nada Alec. She and I are just getting to know each other. She's got a, a great story collection coming out in July. Duncan Birmingham, Melissa Chadburn, and Milo Martin, the poet Milo Martin. So these are just the first three events coming up. There are more. If you want to see the full list, go to bradlisty.com. There are virtual events, in-person events. You can RSVP. I would love to see you either in person or online. I should also say, as a bit of an announcement, that I will be guesting on this program next week. So there's a bit of news. After all these years hosting the show, I'm going to be the guest, and Steve Almond will be interviewing me. He and I are going to switch chairs. So you'll hear me interviewing him this week, and then next week, uh, the tables are turned, and Steve Almond will be the one asking the questions, and I will be the guest on this show. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. 
The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so I think I've gotten through my little list and it's time for the main event. It is time for my conversation with one of my favorite contemporary writers, a truly gifted human who has been working hard and doing great work for a long time. I am so pleased to see him have this success with his new novel, All the Secrets of the World, available from Zando. Here he is, folks. This is my conversation with Steve Almond. All these failed novels that I'm always fetching about are really partly failures because I have not conceived of a character who is not me externally, who I can somehow enter into the experience of and come to know and love deeply, you know, love them deeply enough to see them through the kind of trauma that that Lorena experiences. And I don't know, Brad, I have no idea where she came from, but I know that I instantly wanted to explore what it would be like for her to, you know, kind of be seduced as a, as, as a girl who's grown up as a dreamer. I guess that's what they would call her now. Yeah. Yeah. Like let's, let's just for listeners who haven't read yet, let's give like broad strokes, like bio of Lorena. Like who is she? Yeah. So Lorena Sainz is born. She's like 13 when the novel opens. She's in eighth grade. And she is Honduran American. Her dad's El Salvadorian. Her mom is Honduran. They've come over to give her really a better shake in in things. And her older brother's undocumented. Her father's undocumented. Her mom's undocumented. Dad split long ago. So she's living just with her mom and her older brother, who's in and out of the picture, both of whom are undocumented. And they've come over specifically fleeing violence and economic deprivation in Central America and come to the United States partly when her mother brings her, is pregnant when she comes. So she's born as a U.S. citizen and she is really smart, but she's also lived in a family with undocumented people. So she has learned to try to make herself invisible. And as the novel opens, she is you know, paired with a wealthy classmate for a science fair project and is brought into the orbit of this wealthy family, wealthy white family called the Stalwarts. This is all happening in Sacramento in, in 1981 on the eve of sort of the Reagan revolution. And I know where that part of it comes from, Brad. I was a kid growing up in Palo Alto, California, in, in a part of Palo Alto. Now it's, you know, Techville, it's Silicon Valley land. But back then in the 70s, it was kind of like a sleepy academic suburb. And I was living in South Palo Alto in an area that was predominantly lower middle class 
and going to like an elementary school that was where whites were the minority. And I would ride my bike as a soccer player. I would ride my bike to play in a, a practice downtown Palo Alto. And, you know, there were just these huge mansions with big shimmering lawns, the color of money. And I remember thinking like, wow, okay, well, we're living in this little Eichler that's 900 square feet and I'm sleeping in the same rooms with my brothers. We're not poverty stricken by any means. My parents were both doctors, but they lived well below their means and partly because they were kind of ex-hippies. And I knew that there was like great abundance surrounding me. Palo Alto was near to Los Altos Hills. And when I got when I left that elementary school and went to junior high and then high school, I entered a world where the, the, the kids who were in honors classes, many of them were just very wealthy. So I know that I was interested in the collision of classes probably from that experience. But Lorena herself and where she came from and how she started to act on her own that is something I am blissfully unaware of. And I mean that because the artistic unconscious always makes better decisions. Like if I tried to figure out where she came from, I think she would have, you know, fall through, fallen through my fingers like sand. I just knew that I was really interested in the dilemma that she finds herself in, uh, which is that she is desperate to be seen and desperate to become visible to the world, but that Inherit that is is risky in ways that she doesn't understand yet and I was interested in Lorena because She goes for it in a way. Maybe she's Like I spent so long writing these Characters in these novels who were like these schleps who could never get anything done and I was sort of had them muttering Commentary and passively observing their lives and what I loved about Lorena is she fucking goes for it, man She's really courageous, maybe in a way that is foolhardy, but she sees her opportunity to enter the orbit of this wealthy family and, and, and look at how they operate. And she is canny about it. She is immediately drawn to the parents in very distinct ways. And she takes actions that are really dangerous, given, you know, sort of her powerlessness or, or the, the, the risk that she's under. She just does things that were astonishing to me and that surprised me like, wow, she's really going to go pursue Mr. Stallworth. And she's really going to go try to figure out how, why it is that scorpions glow under ultraviolet light. Like she's going to take the initiative and she is going to present that theory to this, you know, this, this older guy who she's so drawn to, who sees how smart she is and understands that there's a real scientific mind at work. Stallworth hears the way she speaks and when the, 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 the words that she uses, correlation, for instance. And as a professor, he understands, oh, this is a smart kid. His own kids, I think he feels, are privileged and don't take advantage of their minds and aren't voracious and curious in the way that Lorena is. And he sees that and goes, my God, this is somebody who's really smart. He sees her. And that is for her like, you know, water to a cactus or something. She's just desperate for, for that sense of somebody seeing her. And she's also turned on. She's 13. He's this, you know, sexy older man. Her dad has gone missing long ago. So it's very confusing and confused in the way that I'm probably some somewhat familiar with because I do have, you know, two teenagers now in the house. So 
I think I was drawn to a teenage character because they're so vulnerable and their 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 frontal lobes aren't fully developed. They're making dangerous decisions. Well, shit, that's what you want is a character who's making dangerous decisions. And you don't even have to give them booze. They're just going to take risks because that's the nature of how they move through life. So I think there was something thrilling for that in me as well. She's an extraordinarily sympathetic character, easy to love and to root for and to care about. I can see how you were able to find your way in. And I want to just give listeners a, a few bullet points because this novel does a lot of different things. And I tried to write some of them down. I don't know if it's going to cover everything, but it'll give an idea. This is a novel with deep social concerns, a novel that addresses political themes, racial themes. It is a crime novel. It functions at that level for me. It is a period piece, which, you know, I loved as a child of the 80s. There was a lot of great little detail in there that I recognized, like the vanilla wafer cookies. <laughs> like, like some of these things came back to me, you know, it, like it was very uh, astute and relatable. And also it made me want, like, think like, wow, you know, I was a kid in the Midwest. You were out in California. You had the same shitty snacks that we did. <laughs> it, was, right. it was universal. So am I missing anything? Is there anything else big that you feel like you were going for in this book that I did not talk about? No, you got it. But it is it, it makes it difficult because and believe me, like you couldn't knock me over with a feather that, that, that I wrote a thriller because it is a thriller. Yes. And, you know, like, like that's the thing that had been lacking in all of my failed efforts at novels was like plot and pushing things forward. And I was almost racing to keep up with like, holy cow, the instigation and escalation of all these scenes and the way that every single character is bearing secrets, both about themselves, uh, you know, the, uh, sort of uh, secrets that they're keeping from themselves that, that, they, that they're not willing to look at Stallworth and his illicit impulses. He's sort of trying to hide from that. Uh, but also like secrets that they're literally keeping from other people. Mm. Lorena's walks through life with a secret. My mother and brother are here illegally. And if we have an encounter with a, an authority, I have to worry about their deportation. Um, every character has all of these secrets. Jenny, the friend who she made, you know, has got like a ton of secrets that she's keeping. And they just keep doing that. And that to me was just thrilling to, to be able to write these scenes in which all the possibility of a dangerous revelation was always just one misstep or comment or confession away. And so for me, like the thrill of having a writing a book that's actually so crazily plot driven and propulsive that I just had to keep up with it. And I couldn't worry about like, is am I entertaining the reader? Do I seem smart enough? All that crap that ego drama that I was engaged in with all the other books just receded. And I was like, holy crap, Lorena's got to get out into the desert. Lorena's got to get, she's got to find the campsite. She's got to do this. She's got to do that. That took over. And for me, I think I needed that. But I also was kind of thinking in a larger way, like I, I've been thinking about this because I just wrote this piece about like the thrill of a pre-internet novel. Like it was so thrilling for me to write about the world that you and I grew up in where the big innovation was like a calculator and there were, <laughs> there was no screens, there was no GPS. It causes the characters to interact in a way that feels far more familiar to me without the mediation of screens. Yes. Right. And 
they have to like Lorena has to figure out how am I going to f- get here? What who what adults aid am I going to have to enlist? What lies am I going to have to tell them? All of that for me was completely thrilling. And then to also have like the Reagan era, which is such a, a so misunderstood, like, you you know, you, you people sort of look at it through this gauzy haze of nostalgia you know, now that now the right in this country is in this eugenic psychosis where it's like, yeah, we're going to take refugee kids and we're going to who are traumatized already. and We're going to rip them away from their parents. That's what the U.S. government does now. But the seeds of that were planted in the Reagan era. The very idea that people are inherently evil. That was Reagan's idea. There's good people and there's evil people. And it's racially coded, though. I'm not going to say that part out loud. And the job of the state is to keep white people safe from brown people and rich people safe from poor people. All of that was the underside of Reagan and you know the Reagan revolution. And I lived through that and I've been furious about it and anguished about it and seen it metastasize into this psychosis that we're now in of cruelty and sadism and projection. And I wanted to write about that. I wanted to trace it back. And I, I didn't want to do it in the didactic Steve Almond, like, rah, 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 hey, listen to my rant. I wanted to show the collision of this unbelievably brilliant, ambitious, badass young woman in running up against circumstances that are where she realizes the limits of her power and the kind of danger that she and her people are in. And that felt to me like a way to express all of that moral anguish in a way that wouldn't be didactic so it is a mashup to me of like jane eyre and the wire that's the way i thought of it originally like i want to explore these systems of power but i don't want to do it like a rhetorical puppeteer i want to do it like steinbeck did it or de passos or hugo or dickens the people who are masterful at being able to say actually this is all a human drama and there is morality involved but there's also these larger systems of power And until you investigate them and how they warp people's incentives, you haven't properly written the book because you've just flattened people out into villains or victims. And that's not the case. Everybody's a combination of the the two, right? For people who have read your previous books, in particular, your nonfiction, I felt in a writerly way and at the level of being uh, like a friend of yours who's talked to you through the years about these books. Yeah. There's a logic to the fact that you wrote a book like this, and it didn't occur to me fully until I started reading it and got the drift. I was like, oh, yeah. And it felt personally relatable. Like, after dealing with nonfiction, tough stuff, didactic, trying to unpack ugly stuff in a, in a nonfiction way, it makes yep. total sense to me creatively to want to get into a mode that is more fun. Yeah. To have fun on the page at the same time people should know that the characters are round. They're deeply nuanced. It's very psychologically astute, this book. It has the stuff of literary fiction happening. But I was surprised by how beautifully plotted it was. Like in the manner of crime fiction. There's a pop sense. There's a great pop sensibility to this book that impressed me. And caught me a little bit off guard you know i was like wow steve is like going for it like i sort i sort of imagined you sitting at your keyboard being like okay you want a fucking novel here's a fucking novel (laughs) that's it brad (laughs) i was like you know what and i i'm so glad you said that thing about uh, like taking a big swing because like i've walked around with my 
self-pity and my Jewish bullshit, like, I'm a failed novelist, I'm a failed novelist, for 30 years, boring and wearing out the various people around me, like, okay, Almond, like, get in. And I finally, like, took that self-pitying energy and that kind of, the, the, and just said, you know what, let me find a drama that is so absorbing to me and, and so complex and with there's so many trajectories that I have to focus my attention on the characters, not on my own bullshit need to write a great novel. And I also I think this is part of maybe to circle around. This is part of the reason when I fixed on Lorena, it was so liberating for me because it was not me. It was no version of me. It was somebody who I really had to imagine my way into the the, 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 the ways in which she is vulnerable in the world, but also the ways in which she's powerful. And I loved you know, like the moment when, when one of the cops who, who she's talking with looks at her and just goes, she's a junkyard dog. I was like, yeah, I'm writing about a junkyard <laughs> dog, man. It was, you're right. There was such a sense of, um, just, just a release from my own solipsistic bullshit to be able to write about a world that was so absorbing and to try to rather than journalism, where I was always sort of saying, well, you can only really write from the perspective. You have to keep it relatively simple. I'm always the narrator of these books in this book, even though it may mean that, that readers get a little bit discomfited, I go into all these different points of view. And what was happening is that wasn't by design. It was when I started writing, I realized, well, wait a second, Guerrero's got his own story and he's entering the, 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 the cop who ends up investigating and who Lorena gets entangled with. Like, what's his shake in things? And then what about Nando, his cousin? Who, what's his investment in the story? And Nancy Reagan and Graciela signs her, uh, Lorena's mother and her brother, Tony. As I began to and the Stallworths, um, I mean, and the Stallworths, Rosemary and Marcus Stallworth, as I began to write about them and enter their worlds, I did the thing that you're lucky if you can get there, which is you become deeply curious about their version of the story. Right. Everybody's the hero of their own story. And they are always in there. They're always acting in what they take to be their own interests. So somebody like Nancy Reagan is really easy to write off as this kind of astrological ditz. And it's true that that she represents a certain kind of fatal naivete, that just the dream of white supremacy where you can't even see outside your own experience. But also she loved her husband and she believed her husband was kind of messianic figure. And when she saw him shot and nearly killed and the bravery and the courage that he showed to like survive and even keep his sense of humor intact. It was proof to her that he was a, an exalted person, but also that he was in danger and what she does in the book and how it affects the fate of the science family in this tragic way by her own math is completely understandable. And her devotion to this magical system of astrology, if she believes it's possible to keep her husband safe, makes perfect sense. And nobody should look down their nose at her or reduce her to, you know, this kind of Gucci obsessed lightweight. I have to believe and correct me if I'm wrong. But as I was reading, I was like, this has to be the most fun Steve Almond has ever had writing like the Nancy Reagan passages. Like she's a character in this book and you draw her beautifully. And knowing what I know about your, you know, your past books and political concerns and, you know, the generationally speaking, you know, the times that we've lived through that had to be pleasurable writing. It, I mean, if you took a Venn diagram 
of like, let's seat two people next to each other who will truly have a difficult time getting along because the very core identity of who they think they are in the world is diametrically opposed. It would be like seating chart, Steve Allman. Let's put him next to Nancy Reagan. That'll be a car crash. <laughs> but in a certain way, that's what made it delightful. Like that's the challenge. The social novelist is trying to get at everybody's motives and incentives and trying to understand, not just like, oh, there's this one category of people who are powerless and they are automatically the victims and they're noble and so forth. And then there's this other category that's powerful and they're the villains in the story. It's like, that's not how it works. We're all corrupt to some extent or another. We all have ambitions. We all have narcissism. We all have forbidden urges. Nobody is fucking purely innocent or guilty. And it's just a matter of what story we think we're living and kind of how we're formed. And that's the challenge is to, for me, was to go into Nancy Reagan and not flatten her out right, and say, right. if she's going to play an important role in this story, as I think she does, she suddenly appeared and she started messing around with the fate of these other characters from a position of great power. I'm not going to leave unexamined what she thinks she's up to, because that's ultimately a failure of the moral imagination. And the writer is always trying to get the reader to think like, hey, don't write anybody off. We're the fools in charge of forgiveness. That's our gig. That's what we're supposed to be up to. And that applies to everybody. So that for me was really exciting because I realized, well, a social novel doesn't have to be finger wagging. It can actually be totally compassionate because it's trying to get inside everybody's head and heart and understand why they're behaving as they do. That's beautifully said. And I think like you're operating in the gray zone where I always end up, I feel like. But I think it can be easy as a creative person to get into something like writing Nancy Reagan and to flatten her out, as you said. And I could feel your restraint and I could feel your compassion in drawing her. And I'm imagining it might have created a new relationship between you and her. Completely. And even Reagan, who in my, you know, in like my mean, bigoted, lefty mind was like, ah, oh, Reagan, you know, the, the, the original phony baloney, this guy who's, you know, starts out as a, as a, as a lefty and like is now, then becomes a, a communist hunter, this kind of red baiting uh, fink who's, you know, the law and order candidate. He's a phony. He's a Hollywood actor who just put all this stuff, all this like bigotry. And then I, you know, read the accounts and, and did a lot of research into what he did and said and how he behaved during the assassination uh, attempt on his life. And it was like, holy cow, this guy was courageous. This guy was really badass. And that doesn't mean he didn't do destructive things. But I think we, we fall into this habit of thinking um, that the right loves to like, you know, flatten out into cancel culture where we can only think in a binary. And it's so it's so antagonistic to our, our work as storytellers. Because the truth is, everybody is just full of this incredible complexity. And your job is, or at least for the thrill of the novel for me, and the reason I was kind of having so much fun, so much fun that I wasn't even feeling doubt or worry about, like, will this sell or any of that crap, was because the characters were coming up against one another in these extreme circumstances. And I knew that all of them were like basically so vulnerable because they all were in one way or another had a secret that they were guarding. They were on the run. Their lives were falling apart. They were in retreat from the, the a, a kind of sorrow about their circumstances that they weren't able to face. They were imperiled by external circumstances. 
everybody, all of them were wounded. And when they came up against one another, there was always this terrible risk that they were going to hurt one another more. And, you know, like it was just not in a cruel way, but I felt for all of them. And there was a real sense of danger in all the scenes that made them really fun to write. And I, I foolishly in like early drafts didn't even realize there were certain scenes. I was like, I didn't even write this scene, but I've been building a ramp to the moment when Lorena and Rosemary Stallworth have to square off and they both know things about the other and they there's so much at stake here. Why didn't I? Of course, I should be writing that. It took like beta readers to read the manuscript and for me to realize, wait a second, there's like an obligatory emotional scene that I haven't even gotten to that I've been building a ramp to. So that was it wasn't like the first draft through I'd had it all figured out. But what I had figured out was a plot that was where there was so much danger swirling around that there were certain scenes that clearly I had, you know, like I was missing out. It's like a big, beautiful, juicy plum. And I hadn't even bothered to pick it. You resolved each of the different narrative threads satisfyingly. And I'm wondering with regard to the skill with which you plotted this novel, if you got into different practices than you have with previous books, did this, it seems like this would require an outline, but maybe not. You were just kind of fumbling through and then getting feedback and then, you know, getting back into the writing and, and finding your way that way. I started writing it in like 2014 and then the 2016 election happened and I went crazy along with everyone else. And that took me away from that, this story into nonfiction projects. But when I returned to it, I was like, oh, my God, Lorena is even more important. By the time I'd returned to it, we literally had an administration, a regime that was plotting how to criminalize the American dream. It wasn't even hidden anymore. It was overt. And this novel that I'd been writing, which was very much about the, about the American dream and who gets to possess it and who gets the right to even take a crack at it and how they're treated, it felt like, oh my God, this has even greater urgency than I realized. Like things have gotten worse and worse and worse, and I'm trying to trace them back to their origin. So I felt a sense of urgency, but not just that. I was super interested in the story that I'd started to craft. And the moment, there's a moment at the end of the third book, because I divided it into books, partly because it really is different kinds of books. I didn't just say these are new chapters. I was like, book one is like a very dark YA book. And book two is a police procedural. And book three is a walkabout in the desert uh, and an examination of, of faith and, and its relationship to science. Right. And book four and five are where all of those, as you say, like the, the plot has to resolve itself. And I've read so many novels that set something up really complex and then that can't quite complete not every strand gets taken up and you sort of feel like wait a second you set up like i want everything to be resolved i want you to be in control of this narrative enough that everything gets resolved and every seed that is planted early on comes to fruition and part of the revision process was me realizing that there were certain things i hadn't brought to fruition but i also really wanted to say to a certain kind of reader, like, you don't just have to write a book that's one kind of book. 
it is actually possible to integrate the plot of a thriller with the conscience of a social novel. It's actually possible to do more than one thing at one in, in, in a book. And I'm really excited by books that do that. Um, me too. Me I, too. And I think it's almost advisable to, you want to combine these different elements. It's like chemistry, you know, it's like an experiment. If it, if something is just one thing, I suppose if it's really executed beautifully, it can, it can work. There are no hard, fast rules, but these odd combinations, uh, most of the really good stories that I respond to, I recognize these disparate parts working in unexpected ways. And I go, Oh, that's brilliant. Well, I was trying, I mean, in a sense, I was saying, can I use the framework of the police procedural, the thriller, the, uh, you know, the, the incarceration story, the story about criminal justice. Can I take that and also make it an exploration of people's personal corruptions and secrets and ambitions the, the literary part of it? And can I also tell a story that is a parable about how we arrived in the America we're in today? Can I trace some of this back to its origins? And, you know, there are some people I recognize that when I leave Lorena's close point of view and sort of leave book one and go into the world of the police procedural, like there's some people going to be bummed. There is a price for the decisions you make. And, you know, but for me, the thrill of it and probably the reason that I, I was able to drive through it was because every book was a new and distinct book and it offered me a chance to do something else, to explore um, the natural landscape of the desert or to explore the, the mores that exist in certain kinds of religious communities that are quite fanatical and justifying the, the stuff they want to be able to justify. Like I kept encountering these new worlds that were and characters who were completely fascinating to me. And, you know, again, there's a risk to that because when you spread the point of view, you don't get as much of a deep immersion in a single perspective. But as you say, like Lorena is there, the whole she is the through line to the whole thing. And as the as the novel continues, it was clear to me that it wasn't going to be it wasn't really going to be done until I had until I had seen her through to figure out, does she survive this and how does somebody survive this and how do they go from somebody who's got so much potential, but a great ceiling that they're running up against and then has to suffer a tremendous difficulty and trauma. Like, how does that person plausibly emerge and become, you know, somebody who leads a life of deep meaning and doesn't transcend the trauma, but is, is able to make a, 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 a meaningful life, become a teacher herself. And that took a lot of work because you can't bullshit that. You can't award somebody a happy ending. It's just the reader's not going to buy it. Yeah. And so for me, like the book five, I worked over and over, you know, I really, really worked and early drafts were embarrassingly superficial where I was just like trying to tie up all these loose ends. And, and I really, Brad had to spend so much time. Like I built this omniscient narrator who was sort of making comments on the action and it was necessary for me to kind of have the scaffolding for the story I wanted to tell and why I wanted to tell it. But by the end of the draft that you have, the galley copy, and even more so in the finished book, almost every instance of that omniscient journalistic commentary has been cut because it isn't necessary. And not only that, it's condescending to the reader and to the characters. And so it was a big lesson for me uh, that, that like if you figure out the story, 
if you push the characters into enough danger and up against one another, you really you don't need a, a Budinsky narrator who's like giving the moral of the story. The characters are living the moral of the story. You do a great job with what I like characterize as like a false summit or like a false ending where like as a reader you go oh no 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 and then it gets you know down another little rabbit hole and then things happen in surprising ways and resolve in satisfying ways but you do yeah. a very nice job of that of, of playing with the reader's expectations yeah and well, i can imagine that th those moments and processes were the result of the revision they came out of that most of them did and it's thrilling to discover that i mean for writers I was always saying, oh, if something's implausible, that's a problem. But actually, with this book, I was able to realize if something appears implausible, you have to see that as potential. And the truth is, like when I got to the end of book three, Lorena winds up in a place that there is no possible world in which she can actually be there. It's completely shocking. Like, wait, what? She's where? And for me, that drove me through the rest of the book because I was like, she has to be such a junkyard dog that she has to be so resourceful and so smart and so canny and so bold and courageous that she gets to this place. And I sort of make the promise to the reader at the end of book three, the reader's going, wait, what? How did that happen? And the, then for me as the author, the, the challenge is how do I make that happen? How do I arrive at that intersection of astonishment and inevitability that's so pleasurable to the reader where you go, wait, what? And oh, of course. Right. And so that for me was the big challenge. I always say it like this, like your job as a writer, your, your job is to write about the stuff you can't get rid of by other means. So for me, that's all the stuff that ha has haunted me for all these years that I, and, and because I, you know, been unable to successfully write a novel once I'm writing this thing. There's a lot that I'm trying to get in there that's been haunting me. But your job really is to become more interested and more curious about why your characters are behaving in the ways that they're behaving than the ego drama of, is this a good sentence? Did I, did I make the reader happy? Oh, did, does the reader know how smart I am and how big my vocabulary is and how clever I am? And like once you're more interested in the story you're telling than whether it's interesting to the reader, whether your attention is really that's when you know that you've got something on your hands. When the ego drama recedes and the genuine curiosity about what's going to happen to these characters. And I found that happening over and over again. There's this character in the book, Van Dyke, who's this like unctuous, oily um, uh, private detective. And he's a minor character early on. And then I realized, like, again, as with all these other characters, like this guy's oiliness is really interesting to me. The way that certain people work a situation and figure out what angle will get them will get their palms greased like that is interesting to me. How does that person operate? How do they try to uh, sort of finagle their way into situations like this where, like, again, uh, another kind of person would be. Uh, like saying, oh, how can I help or how can I um, just be sympathetic? He's saying, how can I profit? Right. <laughs> right. Right. And I just became interested in him and how he operates increasingly as I was spending time with him. And so, you know, he starts to make his way into the book because I become curious, like, how does that guy see things? So I think I didn't view it as hard work. I viewed it as really exciting. Yeah. And Maybe it, that's the smarter way to view it, you know? <laughs> 
Yeah. It's just like with the with the 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 plausibility issue. Once I sort of realigned my thinking and thought, oh, Almond, this is great. You're really going to have to write like 200 more pages to make the reader believe this and feel it. It was like I'd given myself a little gift, even though probably 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I would have been like, oh, that's bullshit. I can't make that work. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. I want to talk to you about writing cross-culturally and, and yep. across genders, because this book does that for sure. I mean, this is really a book about, it's about Im the immigration experience. It's about the lives and backstories and motivations and deep dreams of characters who fall outside your racial and cultural background. And talk about something that can be easy to screw up. Talk about something that can be I mean, I, th that calls some fear up within me when I think of, when I imagine myself doing it creatively, like, okay, I know that you can kind of do anything as an artist, uh, you know, or almost anything, but you better get it right. <laughs> yep. So talk a little bit about those decisions and the courage that it takes to kind of go there. So I could have continued to write the sort of novels that I had been writing, which were based on some version of me either more of a loser version or more of a famous neat narcissistic version or whatever. And that would have been okay. That would have been fine. But in a way, like your question about Lorena remains this delightful mystery. Why did she appear to me? And why did I immediately become so curious about what it felt like for her to suddenly become visible and enter that home of great wealth and receive the attentions of these incredibly seductive, powerful figures. I can't say why she came to me. I can only say that I knew that I wanted to write about her and understand her experience and travel with her through the world. And I think once we as storytellers start saying, you can't do that. You can't imagine that. It's too dangerous. The risks are too great. It's unfriendly to our art. Otherwise, all of us become representatives of our particular demographic, our socioeconomic history, our racial history, our, uh, our gender, our sexual preferences. And, you know, it's not the artist's only job to imagine their way into other kinds of lives. There's plenty of beautiful, amazing autofiction now called autofiction, right? Uh, you know, Margaret Duras, The Lover. Like, we know that that's like partly her experience and based on her experience. And every novel, every good story has elements of autobiography in it, consciously or unconsciously. That's what we're drawing on. But the big question that I think that more people should ask is who am I choosing to pay attention to? Who am I choosing to pay attention to? Now, once I say I'm going to pay attention to Lorena, I'm going to pay attention to, to her older brother who's undocumented and her mother who's undocumented. And I'm going to pay attention to a Mexican American police officer whose background is very different than mine. You do run the risk of exploiting them, of writing about them in ways that are foolish or naive or condescending. And that risk exists. And the question isn't, should you do it or not? But are you are you trying to be as sensitive and empathic and thoughtful to all the characters as you can? And if you fall short of that, as somebody writing from a position of privilege about characters who are terribly, you know, terrible vulnerability, you should be raked over the coals for it. 
So what about, okay, so what about doing it and then trying to do like quality control, you know, in, in the revision well, process? Did you have like Latinx people read and give you feedback to make sure that you rendered it in a way that was authentic and empathic in all the ways that you described? Yeah. I, I, so, so I definitely had a bunch of people reading. Jen DeLeon, who's a wonderful novelist and nonfiction writer, who's, uh, I think, she's a U.S. citizen, but her folks came from Central America, and she was a, a, a great reader for me, cultural expert, sensitivity, however, whatever term. Um, and she was brilliant in really digging into, does this feel right? Are you getting it right? Are there places where you are, you know, falling victim to colorism and all kinds of stuff that I wouldn't have thought about because I am living cosseted within my maleness and my whiteness and my middle class, upper middle classness. It just am. I'm not fucking awake to everything that I might be getting wrong because I haven't been up against the same bigotries and boundaries as, as the characters I'm writing about, period, end of sentence. And I also believe that this idea that the best people to tell those stories are the people who have lived them, that's true. That's probably true. And there, we have reached a moment after many years of guys who look like us and sound like us and love the sound of our own voices like us, having dominion over bell letters, over the literary establishment. We are reaching a long overdue reckoning with that so that other kinds of stories are becoming foregrounded. So we can't live in this what, you know, Tennessee Coates calls this like dream of white America. Like it's about fucking time. But the other question then for people like me is, well, wait a second, then should I just keep writing about my own experience over and over? And should I be inhibited about trying to understand and enter into like the writing of a social novel that takes on characters of all uh, varieties, of all types, all kinds of economic, socioeconomic status and sexual preference and gender and race and ethnicity and even legal status? And the answer for me was, I want to write about all of them because they all have to live in the same world and they're colliding in these ways that are so monumental every day in real life, not just in the novel that I constructed. And if I fall short or I get things wrong or I'm treating them in a way that's lazy or exploitative or not sufficiently merciful, then good. I should be, we should have a conversation about that. And I'll take my lumps as long as we're actually talking about the plight of undocumented people in this fucking country rather than assuming that they're, uh, you know, criminals. Yeah. Like, that's a good outcome for me. Uh, to, to answer your question, so I had like, Jen read it, and my friend Paul Salopek, to whom the book is dedicated, who grew up, he's a, he's a uh, you know, he's an Anglo, but he grew up in Mexico from a, a I think like six to 13 or 14. And he's a brilliant investigative reporter who I met down in El Paso and who was really an immersive reporter who understands and wrote about the realities of um, living in Mexico, of immigration, uh, of, of how the border operates, did some of the most breathtaking reporting, went on to win a couple of Pulitzers. And, you know, he's a really brilliant investigative journalist and just journal storyteller. So he was very helpful. I Gave it to my friend Karen Lynch, who's a wonderful writer, who's also a, a, a police officer in the San Francisco Police Department around the same time as the book is sent. Because I wanted to see, am I getting the, these parts right? I gave to my friend Victor Cruz because I wanted to get his read on it. I gave it to a number of women because I wanted to get their read on it. You know, pr most prominently my wife, who was brilliant in diagnosing what the book needed to do. Um, 
And so I gave it to lots of people to try to get these early reads and and also to sort of realize like this is not coming out like this book was inevitable for you to write because I also have spent a lot of time as an investigative journalist before I became a fiction and nonfiction writer or a creative writer. And so I spent the early part of my career writing stories about like the Bird Road Rapist, who was a, you know, a guy who was railroaded down in Miami with totally flimsy evidence because they needed somebody to be arrested because this was the Bird Road Rapist. In my book, it's the Death Valley Killer. Well, the the precursor to the Death Valley Killer is the Bird Road Rapist. And I wrote this story about this you know, Cuban-American immigrant who was essentially railroaded. And I don't know, five or 10 years after I, those stories ran in the, in the newspaper that I worked for. Sure enough, the Innocence Project, there was a DNA rape kit and he was fully exonerated and released from prison after 26 years. Um, you know, we, we know about this because there are that's the other reason that it, rather than thinking, oh, God, you know, you're setting it in, in the 80s, you're going to lose all this wonderful technology. Actually, dramatically, it's more interesting to me. Because before there was DNA evidence, it was much easier for the powers of the state to become mobilized against somebody who really wasn't demonstrably guilty because, you know, the, 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 the evidence, the physical evidence was ambiguous because the technologies didn't exist yet to make them more precise. That was another place where something that might, I might have viewed as a plausibility problem was actually an advantage. To setting, the, to setting the novel in time where there was not DNA to tell us definitively one way or another, and therefore it was up to the human beings involved with all their flawed motives. But I did you know, as much research as I could into everything, whether it was scorpion biology or the way that the history of Mormons who eventually ended up um, emigrating to, to northern Mexico. Like I tried to do as much research as I could and um, but I think the main thing that you try to do is to really think deeply about who each of the characters is and what their incentives and motives are, what story they're born into. And that is what and whether you truly love them or feel sympathy for them. It's that kind of fraudulence where where the reader really has the right to say, hey, you're exploiting, you're engaged in trauma porn. You're not really interested in the systems of power that have rendered these people powerless or that have made them vulnerable. You just want to write a story with blood and guts in it or where somebody has bad things happen to them. And those are the places where I feel like it, it was, in a way, the most exciting for me to really try to enter into, for instance, the deep trauma that, that Tony, Lorena's older brother, carries in his life. And to do that, really, Brad, I have to travel with him back to his early childhood, where he is brought by his father at age four on a journey that is completely traumatizing, brought north from the only life he knows through the desert with all kinds of dangers and confusions to the United States, alone with his dad, taken away from his mother. And like nobody can really understand why Tony can't use his great intelligence and why he's so self-destructive until they travel back to that story. And if I, I mean, that's my job is to try to be, to, to, to get into the heart of this person. Whether I'm successful or not, the reader gets to judge, but it's my job 
to try to to love all the characters Hmm. and that's the real question is did you love the characters not did you get you know the the names of the cities right or wrong that kind of thing yeah no that's wise like that's wise and it gives i think a nice clear directive when it comes to doing this kind of work it's not about the surface stuff at the end of the day, though the surface stuff matters, you do have to get the. You want to get some details right. You don't want right, to. Of course. You don't want to screw up the little like uh, small brushstroke details of a culture, but it's about heart. It's right. about love and empathy for the character and getting into their humanity. And if you can get it, it makes sense to me that it would work when you get there because then you're in territory that's familiar to all of us, and that is an equalizer. Ultimately, the reason that a book becomes exploitative and and can fairly be criticized for that as this one might be who knows um but but the reason that happens is because you haven't really sufficiently imagined your way into the experience of the characters that you're writing about uh, and, and and they become sort of your playthings or something that you're kind of um uh, sh- sort of uh, exploring like um like slumming uh, or like the experience i had as a journalist where you would sort of go into a setting where people were suffering um, and uh, kind of parachute in and capture a few gory photos or images, uh, and then you would bring it back to the newsroom and type it up real quick. I did that for years as a journalist, and every time I did, I knew there was something corrupt in the arrangement. I was like, I don't really care about these people. They're, They're like part of my job. I'm exploiting them in order to tell a story that's gonna generate so many readers or clicks or whatever it is. Sure. You know, for, for me, this novel was a chance to do just the opposite, to, to really think deeply and feel deeply and imagine my way into the experiences of these characters. So I sort of started with their circumstances. And this is why the novel in the, in the last couple of books goes so deeply into Tony and Graciela, because they're the ones with, with so much at stake. It's not that the other characters aren't interesting. They're interesting, but they don't have as much skin in the game. And so for me, it felt completely necessary for me. And it was a surprise in a way, but like the kind of surprise that made it really exciting to write. Like, I don't know what's going to happen next. When I realized I need to understand Tony, it's not enough for him to be the bullying older brother or the wrongly accused. I need to understand how this guy operates. And I was just chasing it where for so many, maybe some other people who have had this experience that maybe you as a novelist for so long, Brad, I felt like I was just pushing, pushing, pushing my characters around, hoping they bumped into the big ticket items. Right. And this was the opposite experience where I was chasing it. And I was saying, hold on, hold on, Tony, hold on. I need to, I need to, we need to spend a little more time. I need to understand what happened. What was that journey like? What did it smell like? What did it look like? Uh, you know, and, and that was that's the thrill of revelation for me. That was the feeling that kept drawing me towards it. And it wasn't I'm going to take a big swing or I'm finally going to write a big social. It wasn't any of that. It was like, let me just understand this guy and what happened to him all those years ago that has made it so hard for him to be happy in the world. And that is, you know, led him along with lots of stuff stacked against him into this impossible situation. Do you have an origin point, like a point, a singular point of origin for the book? Was it a title, an image, a character? Or was it Lorena's face or a thing she said or did? I think there are two things I would say. One, that 
it has always stayed with me this episode from when I was 13 years old, where where a friend's uh, father disappeared. And I remember showing up at this friend's house a week or two later, and his beautiful mother, who had had this beautiful, you know, beautifully styled hair. And I remember seeing her in the kitchen, and her hair had turned snow white, looked like ashes. That, hap- I, that happened to my grandmother after my aunt died. The same thing. Right. And probably like she just stopped using Clairol or something. But for me, it stayed with me that, that her body expressed this like sudden, sudden aging or transformation. And I remember that house and I remember that that those kids, I won't say their names because I guess it's not my right because it is a real story. But um, I remember that they had like snakes in the house and they once had a black widow and that I used to be terrified, but also excited going over there. I remember they had a swimming pool and there were some sort of naked shenanigans in the in the swimming pool. And all of that shows up in the book. Right. So there's that kind of stuff that's sort of the core memory that, that seeing the scorpions in the desert living on the border, you know, being able at age 21 or 22 my first job out of college, having grown up in the suburbs, gone to school at some New England elite, you know, liberal arts college, suddenly living in a place where literally my balcony overlooks the Rio Grande. And I can see the day maids coming across the river every morning to just come and work in the United States and with the bags on their head, you know, and scrambling up the embankment and being freezing cold and having to dress and hope the the INS isn't going to catch him. Like I saw that. That was me sipping my latte, like watching that, like, welcome to America. So, you know, that stuff I can consciously say I drew on some of those scenes wind up in the book. But I'll tell you the moment that really tripped my trigger and that really made me excited to like plunge further, which is at a certain point, Lorena goes to uh, Jenny Stallworth's big fancy house and, um, you know, is invited over for dinner and immediately the mom kind of settles on her as a, as a uh, not an orphan, but somebody who needs more attention and guidance and, you know, benevolent white savioring or whatever. Um, and the dad, who's this hirsute, sexy guy, but very quiet and gruff, is there as well. He's supposed to help the girls with their project. And she's immediately drawn to him because he sees her intelligence and He's driving her home after this dinner. And Brad, that scene like took on a life of its own because at a certain point he he's driving in his Jeep and he gets to her little apartment, her family's apartment in this rough part of town. And he the door to his Jeep is stuck. It's hard to open. So he reaches across her to open the door and the the hairs of his forearm and lightly brush against a little bit of exposed skin on her belly. And there's this moment where something passes between them that is undeniable and primal. And the moment that happened, which I was not expecting at all, I was like, oh, holy shit. There's a lot more trouble in Dodge City than I realized. And that was very exciting. When that kind of thing happens, I don't know where it comes from. It's That's the wonder of it. But it was the kind of thing that I knew made the story bigger and more complicated. So I want to talk about the long struggle a little bit. I mean, we've alluded to it, but I think listeners, particularly those who are writers, can always benefit <laughs> from hearing a writer talk uh, openly about the long struggle. I mean, you have fought the good fight as a writer for a long time. You've tried to write 
uh, a novel for a long time. Yeah. And you didn't give up and you, you got it done. And how does, how does it feel now? <laughs> you know, like looking back, like what's your perspective on the difficulties, some of which are self-created, others of which, you know, come yeah. from the outside. Like, how do you view it? Well, like on better days, if you know what I mean, like on the bad days, I'm like, oh, God, all that wasted time, all that dumb, all those paragraphs you were, all those sentences that you worried the language, like, you idiot, you should have, whatever, that whole narrative. On better days, what I do is I go, um, okay, so like the way I describe it is because uh, um, I, I, I wrote about this for this piece for poets and writers, you know, there, there's this. I wrote about everything I tried to learn from all the failed novels because I wrote about four and a half failed novels or novels that would never be published and did not deserve to be. And for a long time, I had the attitude they were just failures rather than viewing them as, OK, you like you found out what doesn't work. What can you learn from it? And you you had the discipline to write in the long form, you just weren't ready to. What decisions did you make that led to this um, bad outcome? That, that It's not just that it didn't find a place in the world, you knew it didn't, it de didn't deserve to have a place in the world. And what I realized is like, so there's this video online where this cat is trying to leap onto a roof and somebody in internet meme style has like written over the cat all these theorems, mathematical theorems and equation as the cat is sort of sizing it up. And you, you know, like the cat's really working the angles. And then the cat launches itself and plummets out of the frame because it comes nowhere close to getting the roof, right? It just goes. Whoosh. And what I, I feel, I felt like that all the time as a writer. I feel like that all the time. And I'm like, I'm trying to do the math and, you know, and I'm just leaping and failing, falling way short of what I want. And what I realize is like the way the cat gets onto the roof isn't that their math improves and it isn't that their legs get stronger and they go to the cat gym and get buff. That's not how it works. What happens is they're they're standing on a mountain of failure and that's the thing that allows them to be to, to get to the roof. And for me, in healthier moments, that's what I do. I say, OK, for whatever set of reasons lack of imagination or talent or forgiveness or focus or whatever it is, I wouldn't, I couldn't get to the roof, but I accumulated enough failed experiments that intuitively I started to understand, like make different decisions. Don't try to write a book that is in one point of view. Don't try to write a book that is a, 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 a version of you. Make sure that you have a plot that is really interesting and understand that every scene should be instigating or escalating action and should trigger a further scene. Like all these things that I could see my previous novels didn't do, places where they just got marooned. I, not consciously, but I think unconsciously, just got tired of failing in those particular ways and took different approaches. Not with my big conscious brain, but I think unconsciously. And that's what I mean about sort of standing on a mountain of failure. Like I just... I'm a slow learner. I had to fail enough times at this particular form because it's just much harder. You know, you have a novel. It is incredibly difficult. Well, before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about the publication process for this book, because if I'm not mistaken, it is the first title for a new press called Zando. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. So this is the inaugural title for a new press that was founded by some publishing industry veterans. And can you just talk about like the book sales process? Because you've gone out with books before, you know what it's like to yeah. you know, go around trying to find a publisher, but you've never gone out with a grand entertainment like this, uh, <laughs> which is more commercial to be frank than uh, other books you've written in just in the broad sense of things. So can you just talk about what it was like. It would be hard to be less commercial than some of my titles. <laughs> I can relate. What's Almond's brilliant marketing scheme? I'm gonna write a I'm gonna write a book about an obscure novel. Yeah, that will sell. <laughs> so anyway, yes. I was aware that I had written something that was a thriller in a way. I mean it's a social thriller, blah blah blah, but it is it's a page turner. That's how I felt writing it. I hope that's how it feels reading it. And I am not likely to do that again. It take me a long time and probably really, if I'm honest, like all those failed novels to do it. So I didn't have that feeling that I sometimes have that like self-righteous Steve Almond. I don't need an agent. I'll just send this out and I don't need the intervention of some pimp and blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, I've got this shot. And it's not that I want um, to get a big advance or anything like that, but I do want to make sure it lands with an editor who really gets what I'm trying to do. And like a publisher will help me put it out in the world. So there's some wind in the sails and I don't have to work the oars so hard. So that has been Zando. They are, you know, Molly Stern was Jillian Flynn's editor, Michelle Obama's editor. She was the head of Penguin. She was a big deal, brilliant editor, brilliant finder of books and a really smart publisher. And then she hired Emily Bell, who is like, I'm going to start quelling because you dream to have such an editor. She came from FSG where she'd been for a decade. I mean, Molly Stern basically hired her dream team of all the people she most respected and wanted to create a, a press that didn't just throw 50 books against the wall and hope that one of them stuck, but like tried to figure out how to create imprints and partnerships that would make sure that every book had a chance um, to do really good, that it would be discovered in some way. Now, how they do that is beyond my ken. I don't know whether they'll figure that out and how, but I can tell you that they have, like the experience has been fantastic. And Emily Bell in particular was just an unbelievably smart, sharp editor for this book as every other author who works with her ends up saying. And I just, um, you dream of that. In the end, I don't care a lot about how much the book is sold for or uh, what the name is on the spine. All I care about is, does the editor and the house itself get what I'm trying to do? And will they help me make it better? Period. That's the end of my concern. And Zando has completely been a dream to work with in that way. They got what I was up to and they took a risk for the reasons you mentioned. I and mean, they're real representation issues for to have a middle-aged white guy writing from all these different perspectives, some of them of, you know, across ethnicity and culture, socioeconomic, all that. And I think that they had the feeling that the agent who represents me now, Jenny Ferrari Adler had, which is Okay, yeah, yeah, I get that, but I just sailed through this thing. I just tore through it because I haven't read anything this exciting for blah, blah, blah. That was the preeminent thing that they were responding to was that they were really excited by the story and the characters and the rest they could figure out. 
you know, whatever risks it incurs or how much they should invest in it or any of that nonsense. Like to me, that is a lower category concern. The central thing is, is it a good partner? Because they get what I'm trying to do and they believe in it. The market will have its say, right? I'm not sitting there like, I'm glad it got optioned real quick. Um, because people who read it were like, I can see it. It's like a movie. And I was like, yeah, I guess it is. I finally wrote a, it's like a cinematic piece of work. I was going to ask this. So, so it did get optioned. Like what's the status of that? Well, it got optioned for like a good, like a really good, surprisingly good amount of money. And they have a writer attached to it. Who's a veteran guy, really smart. Talked with me about the book. He clearly totally get, gets what it's about. And, you know, it was written for this guy, John Feldman. He's written for the Wonder Years and Newsroom and all these different shows. And but, you know, you know, something being in L.A., like everything gets optioned. It's whether they make it or not. And to me, I have no control over that. But I'm just delighted that they were interested enough in the story that they were like, hey, we would like to make images or we would like to we see that this is something that would be a really exciting visual story to tell. So maybe that'll happen. But the most important thing, and if it does great, I'll be so delighted. And I don't, it's not that I don't care what they do, but they get to make their own artistic decisions. What I'm was concerned about with Zando is, do you get the decisions I'm trying to make and how can I make them better? And Emily Bell was so precise. She was like, I think this is mostly done, but we're going to have to turn some dials. I remember her saying that to me and I was like, okay, that sounds good. But man, did she know exactly what to dial up and what to dial back? And she never said, you must do this. She was like, look, here's my feeling about it. You can sit your book. And I just thought, where do they, where do you like, where did she come from? This is the dream editor who is low key, but very precise in their observations and lets the writer because I think I might have gotten my hackles up if it was another sort of editor saying, you must do this or you must do that. She was very much like, here's what I'm picking up on. And it took me sometimes a couple of days, but I almost in every case was like, yep, you're exactly right. That's what you want. Like That's exactly what you want. No more, no less. Well, I'm super happy for you. It's great to see. I love seeing this sort of thing happen where somebody sticks it out and wrestles the thing to the ground and has such a success. And it's just a, a kind of breakout creative thing for you. You know, it must've been such a joy in so many moments to write this thing. And I just congratulate you on it. And I hope that, you know, I, I don't know, I hear what you say. You, you almost always have to create a new thing from a mountain of failure, but Maybe this time, just create that mountain faster. <laughs> yes. I hope to do that. I could barely do it any slower. I'll be dead if I take another 30 years. But I will say that, that like, you know, I've been waiting in my own fanboy way of, like, I hope, Brad, like, I wrote it for you. You believed in my work for a long time and understood it more deeply than most people bother to or that it merits. And so, like, for people who actually know who I am and know my body of work, I was kind of on pins and needles. Like I hope Brad really likes it because I kind of partly wrote it for him because you really have given me a lot of support and understood my work. And I, and I did feel such a sense of joy. And that's the main thing that like the, the creation of a book, 
like the author has all these feelings and excitement about it and curiosity. And I really do think that's a lot of what is transmitted to the reader. And the central thing that I want is, yes, it's serious and social and blah, blah, blah. All my ranty side is there. But the central thing I felt in making it was what I wanted, what you, what I think I hope you felt, which is just the excitement and the thrill of chasing this crazy tale and not exactly knowing where it's going to go next. But feeling trust that it is going to come together in the end, even if it takes five fucking failed novels and 30 years and, you know, 16 drafts. And that I'm just so happy that like you liked it. Thank you. Yeah, no. And uh, I also, the, the last thing I'll say is that you talk about that excitement and it chasing this wild tale. There's a boyish energy in this there's like the steve like steve allman the boy who loves a great story who early in his life gets the bug whatever you know the bug that we all get if we wind up trying to do this right he's in this book to a degree that he is not in other books not only as a creative matter but just as a practical matter you know got it that boy had been strangled by my fucking ego <laughs> i he finally resuscitated him and he's like i'm back baby <laughs> Well, on that note, congratulations to you. It's great to uh, talk with you, and uh, I wish you, uh, you know, great success with this book and also with whatever comes next. All right, man. It's great to see you. I love you. All right, there we have it, guys. That is Steve Almond, and his new novel, his debut novel, is called All the Secrets of the World. It is available now from Zando. For more information. You can check out Steve on the internet. His official website is stevealmondjoy.org. You can also follow him on Twitter at stevealmondjoy. One more time, the book is called All the Secrets of the World. It is available now wherever books are sold. Go get your hands on this novel. It is a wonderful book. It is a gripping read. It's perfect for this time of year, I feel like. I feel like I need to be lying by a pool, like rereading this book. So check it out. All the Secrets of the World by Steve Allman. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? The entire archive of this show, almost 800 episodes and counting, all of it is made available to listeners free of charge. This is a listener-supported show. I am asking for your support. If you are a regular listener, if you get something from the program, I have set it up so that it's very easy to support this show. You can do so for as little as $1 per month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod. You just throw $1 in the hat every month. It's that simple. You can throw $3 a month, $5 a month. It moves up the scale, whatever you desire. And as you move up the scale, you can get stuff, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a book club subscription, a coffee mug. I will wish you a happy birthday. All that stuff over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Again, I have a new novel coming out on May 10th. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. You can get it in trade paperback, ebook, or audiobook format, whatever you like. And I have a full slate of events over at bradlisty.com. Check it out. I would love to see you. Uh, either in person here in LA or virtually, depending on where you are. So please go to bradlisty.com, click on the links, RSVP, and join me. The Other People podcast has its own official app. 
I'm not sure if you're aware of that. The Other People app. It's a great way to listen and it is free. Go get the Other People app. Search for it by name, Other PPL, wherever you get your apps. Last but not least, the Other People podcast has its own official YouTube channel. The entire archive of this show is available on YouTube. So check that out. Go to YouTube. If you're a YouTube person, search for the show by name, Other PPL, and subscribe. It's free. Push the subscribe button. That helps the show. It helps the show find new listeners. Another great way to help the show, rate it and review it wherever you listen, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever. Give the show a good rating, write a nice review. That also helps the cause. All right. So I think that's it. I will be back next week as the guest on my own show. I will be in conversation again with Steve Almond, except this time he will be the one conducting the interrogation. So I'm looking forward to it. Thanks again for listening, and I will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.